Amen. Love that. Thank you, worship team. Uh, you might notice that it's uh, Youth Sunday here at Rock Prairie, and always blessed by that. I always like to say the students aren't the future of the, our church. They are our church right now and uh, fully part of our church, and so we are always blessed uh, to be able to... Uh, uh, witness them and participate in them using their gifts to lead us and serve us in that way. So thank you so much, uh, students who are congregating backstage right now. Um, uh, well, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be uh, going to read verses 2 to 13. We'll be primarily in verses 2 to 8 this morning, talking about a very interesting story, a little bit of a strange story. It's the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. And this is actually the last week of our mini-series on the works of Jesus, looking at the accounts of his healings and his miracles, the things that he did. And then uh, next week, like I said, we're going to take a break from our uh, series on the Gospels uh, for our baptisms. And then the week after that, we're going to begin another kind of mini-series within, within a series on the parables of Jesus. And uh, really excited about that. Uh, but we got a lot to do this morning, so hopefully you've turned to Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 2 to 13. I'll read it in its entirety, and then we will pray. It says this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love that. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, uh, once again we just ask for illumination uh, on um, this incredible uh, event that took place, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus, the disciples, and uh, what it means. So, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, speak clearly to our hearts this morning, uh, speak through me, uh, humble my heart, uh, guide my tongue, and, uh, Lord, just we want to see your glory, um, just like uh, Peter and James and John got the opportunity to see your glory. We want to see your glory as well. So we pray, um, do that, Lord, and uh, just we ask that your Spirit would apply this word to our hearts and that we would not be the same. And we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, for the last five weeks, we've been spending some time looking at 
the works of Jesus, the things that he did. And we, you might have felt this tension that I felt, which is like, man, we could spend a lot longer than five weeks looking at the works of Jesus. We could spend a year and, uh, and still not cover everything. And, uh, and uh, yet, uh, there's kind of been uh, a purpose to the stories that we have chosen. And, and I hope that it, in the time that we've spent looking at the works of Jesus, there's, this, there's one thing that you've noticed which is that Jesus' works point us to who he is. Everything that he does is meant to point our eyes to see something, that he is the Son of God. We're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but there's just no way to read the accounts of the stories of the things that Jesus did and come away thinking that the authors of the Gospels are trying to show us that Jesus is just a really great teacher or something. No. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all extremely clear in this. Jesus is not just a man. He is the God-man. And the works that Jesus did all point us to see that. And this week's passage, the reason I'm saying that, is that this week's passage is like the pinnacle of that. What we're going to see this morning that Jesus wasn't just like showing off for his friends by making his clothes like, hey, you want to see a cool trick I can do? I'm going to go up on this mountain and uh, look, look, I got some celebrities I want you to meet. These are just my buddies. I can just make them show up, Moses, Moses and Elijah. Look, I can make my clothes really bright. Pretty cool, huh? That's not just what Jesus was doing. If I had the power to do those things, I would do it all the time. I'd make Moses and Elijah show up right now just to that'd be pretty cool, right? But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching us something extremely profound, both about who he is as the Son of God, but then beyond that, he's actually showing us something profound about who we are as well as followers of Jesus, but it's going to take some digging for us to see that. So did you, did you bring your shovels this morning? Are you ready to dig and, and get to work and see what's going on in this passage? All right, very good. I like that. So look with me at verse 2. We're going to start digging and seeing what's going on. It says this, and after six days, okay, stop right there. We're all good readers of our Bibles here at Rock Prairie Church this morning. You read something like that, after six days, you pick up this passage, what question should we be asking ourselves? Six days after what, right? What's, what's going on? Well, this is six days after the events that began in chapter 8, verse 27. So even before we get into this passage, we're going to need to do a little bit of rewinding. So turn there with me, or, or look there with me, one page back, uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 27, to see what, is talk, what happened six days ago. It says this, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So what, what are you guys hearing about me? You guys have been around. What are people saying? Who do people say that I am? And I guess there were a whole, people had theories, right? They were talking. They were talking about what Jesus was doing, and uh, they all had theories. So some of the theories were, well... Maybe he's John the Baptist, right? Like a reincarnated John the Baptist or something. Others say that he's, maybe this is Elijah. We're going to see that that's clearly not the case in just a minute. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about them. So look at that. Peter got one right. 
He needed that. Good job, Peter. There's all these theories about who is Jesus. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. He gets it. Gold star for Peter. He's going to need that gold star because he's about to take a couple uh, massive L's here, uh, just as the kids say. Um, uh, he's he's, he's going to need it because he's about to be a little bit embarrassed. But he got this one right. So we'll just, we'll just sit here and say, good job, Peter. You got that one right. But then look what happens next. Right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man... You remember that language from when we studied Daniel. He began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And and Peter has some opinions about this. What's he do? He shows up, took him aside, and began to rebuke him. Okay. This is where we kind of need to take off our 21st century hats and uh, put on our like first century Jewish hats because what I just read to you of what Jesus explained to them was not shocking to any of you, right? Most of you are here on Easter. You know the story about uh, suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, this idea of the Messiah connected with suffering is not a surprise to you, right? We sing about Jesus as the Messiah, and we sing about his suffering and his death, right? Um, so uh, that's not strange to us. But if we're going so to understand why this is so shocking, what Jesus is saying, we need to force ourselves to think like the disciples were thinking at that time. See, for Peter to confess, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, just a few verses ago, that was a big deal. When he says that, he's saying, I believe, Jesus, you are the one to whom all the scriptures are pointing, who will save all of Israel and bring about the everlasting kingdom. All these promises in the Old Testament, Jesus, you're the one who's going to bring these things about. And that's true, right? He's not wrong. The problem is the way that he thought those things were going to be be brought about because he's like Jesus says yes that's me but don't tell anyone yet and then Jesus talks about having to suffer and die and Peter's like whoa 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 Jesus didn't you hear what I just said I said you're the Messiah not the must die you see what I did there you're like I gotta be honest I thought of that in my office I I came up with that but that's trademark you have to cite me if you want to use that I was so proud of myself. And then my next thought was, Emily's going to be so embarrassed when I say that. (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? The Messiah and suffering do not go together in Jewish thinking. It's oil and water. It doesn't make any sense. It'd be like uh, if George Washington rallied the troops together and said, guys, I'm the one who's going to lead us to victory over England, and I guarantee you, like, we are going to win this war and we're going to be independent, and I'm the one who is going to lead us to victory. And like, yeah, woo, go George, right? And then uh, he said, so by the way, next week I'm going to get captured by the British Army and I'm going to get tortured and they're going to put me to death. And he'd be like, whoa, 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 wait a second. You just said we're going to win the war and, and you're going to lead us. So, no, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let you get captured, right? I mean, that would be your thinking, and that's the thinking of Peter and the disciples. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're going to suffer and die, and then three days later rise again. It's like you see this, it's not even, like, 
computing or processing with them. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. And then what's Jesus' response to Peter? He's pretty chill about it, right? No. <laughs> what does he say? Get behind me, Satan, right? Well, Peter's just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And then three sentences later, get behind me, Satan. Now, he's not actually saying that Peter is Satan, right? What's he saying? That to get in the way of the plan of the Messiah to suffer and die is to do the work of Satan because the work of God is for Jesus to suffer and die. And this is crazy. But then, I mean, you just got to keep reading and see what's going on here. Jesus doubles down on the whole suffering thing, and he doesn't only apply it to himself. He applies it to everyone else, right? So it's like, again, bring it back to our George Washington analogy, like I'm going to get captured, and then you all are going to get captured, and we're all going to die. It's like, this is not the plan. This doesn't make any sense. But look at what Jesus says, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? Cross and follow me. Again, we hear this verse. It's like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. We have to put ourselves to death on the cross. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet when he said that. So it's like, what is he talking about? The way to following Jesus. Not only is Jesus, who is correctly identified as the Christ, going to die, but if you want to follow him, the way to obedience, following him, is death as well. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to be said there, and it's for another sermon, but what Jesus is saying is, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you your life. So that's the setting, okay? So that's when he says six days later, it's just like this, it's been six days since Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus talks about uh, the Christ uh, is going to have to suffer and die, and then, uh, and if you want to follow me, you're going to have to do the same. And now it's six days later, and what happened in those six days, we don't know, Mark doesn't tell us, but uh, now uh, Jesus picks a couple of his disciples, which he does sometimes, and he says, we're going to go, let's go for a hike, and so they go up on this mountain. It doesn't even say what mountain, but they go up on a mountain, and they realize it's not an ordinary hiking trip, is it? Something crazy happens, uh, and something that Mark introduces, which he's just always so understated. If you read the Gospel of Mark, it's like, give me some emotion, Mark. Like, this is crazy. Like, I mean, come on. What's it say? Verse, chapter 9, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. <laughs> oh, tr- okay. He was transfigured. Now, first of all, I mean, just for us, like who used the word transfigured this week when you're talking to somebody? Nobody, right? What's that mean? The Greek word is metamorpho. So any Greek scholars in here, want to, what, what English word do you think comes from that? Metamorphosis, right? That's, so it's that same. Now, we don't just apply our understanding and put it back there, but it does help us kind of see it's, it's a change in form. So what's it, it means... Jesus looked one way, and then all of a sudden, he looked different, is is what Mark is saying there. And then he gives us a little more detail, verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
I love that. It's like, not even your grandma. She can get stains out of everything, but not even your grandma could get your, your clothes looking as good as Jesus's were looking there. His clothes became radiant. And, and I think, honestly, that's another thing that can kind of get lost on us because we can all kind of picture this, right? You can picture, like, the special effects at a movie of, like, somebody glowing white or, like, we, you know, we have LED lights now. They just, like, very bright lights. And uh, the, the, it's, it's like what you can almost hear Peter describing this to Mark, and just like words failing him for what is actually going on. It's kind of like if you've ever like been to the Grand Canyon or just some like beautiful like place in nature and you see it and what like was your first response that like takes your breath away a second, right? And then what's your second response? Pull out my phone and take a picture. And then you look at the picture like, nah, that's not it, right? That's what kind of the language of like describing Jesus' transfigurations, like you can hear Peter saying, to Mark, like, yo, you know, like his clothes were like super bright. Oh, like, oh, like they'd been bleached really well. No, even brighter than that. Like, you don't, like, we don't have words to describe it, but think about how you feel looking into the Grand Canyon for the first time and then apply that to looking at Jesus' face times like a thousand, right? Like, that's what's going on. There's like glory beyond what we can even fathom is taking place on this mountain. And then something else crazy happens, which we've already said, right? Moses and Elijah show up. Verse 4, again, just super understated by Mark. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay. Doesn't this give you just like a million questions in your mind that, again, that Mark has no interest in answering for us? Like, where have they been? What, what have they been up to? You remember, Elijah never died. He was taken into heaven, but Moses died, and now, but here they both are on this mountain, and it says they were talking. Mark doesn't even tell us what they were talking about. Uh, Luke does, though, and this is one of those instances where it helps to go to another gospel to get a little more context, but Luke tells us they were, this is cool, they were talking about Jesus' departure that was about to take place, and the, this is, think about this, Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about his departure, meaning his what, his death that was going to happen in Jerusalem. The Greek word for departure that is used there is the word exodus. Okay, Greek scholars, what, what do you think that, where do we get, what word do we get from that? Exodus, right? I mean, come on. Here's Moses talking to Jesus about Jesus' upcoming exodus through death. And there's five sermons that I could preach on that, but we, we just got to keep moving on this one. But there, there's this, something crazy is happening. And, uh, and if you were there, you wouldn't have known what to say. And we know that because Peter was there and, and he didn't know what to say. And he's about to take his second L again, like the kids say on Youth Sunday, uh, in six days here. Big time. And it's hilarious when we think about it. So Peter, verse 5, Jesus is tra- changed in form and is radiating with the glory of God. Moses and Elijah, sh- Elijah show up. And uh, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's a good thing that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He's saying we are here like him and James and John. Like he's saying, Jesus, it's so good you brought me and James and John up here. Like this, I mean, this is funny, guys. This is like if I showed up to a pickup basketball game and there's LeBron James and Michael Jordan and Steph Curry, and I'm like, guys, it's so good that I'm here with you right now. Like, that's what Peter's saying. And then Mark, Mark kind of gives us this hilarious side note. 
It's like he didn't even know what to say. <laughs> they were just terrified. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, or know somebody like this where it's like, I don't know what to say, so I'm just going to start letting words come out, and then I'm hoping that eventually I can kind of find my footing. That's what Peter's doing. He's, oh, Jesus, oh, hey, we're here. Maybe we can build you guys some tents, right? And where's he even going to get this stuff to build a tent? I, I don't know. They're on a mountain, right? It's funny. We can laugh at the things that are funny in, in the Bible. But also what's happening is Peter is thinking like a Jewish person at that time, a first century Jewish person. The word for tent, the same word is the word tabernacle. And in their thinking, when the glory of God shows up, right, if you're steeped in the story of the history of Israel and the glory of God shows up, you need a tabernacle, right? Well, you need a temple, but if you don't have a temple, you can build a tent to house the glory of God. But what's wrong with Peter's thinking here? How many tents does he want to build? Three. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see what you see what we're seeing, we're supposed to see here is that he wasn't he still wasn't thinking right about Jesus. He's putting Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus, isn't he? And he didn't understand showed that he didn't understand who the Messiah really was. He just thought that the Messiah was another in the line of Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and these other great uh, leaders in Israel's past. And, and, uh, and we hear things like this all the time today, don't we? Like Muslims, for example, uh, they say that Jesus, he's one of the prophets in, in the line of the prophets, and he's one of them. And we can know some of the things he said. They say some of the Bible's been corrupted, so we don't know exactly. But they say, yeah, he's a good man, and he's a, he's a prophet. And, uh, but all the time, what do you hear you know, people who aren't necessarily followers of Jesus say about Jesus? Never really hear people say, oh, Jesus is terrible. They say, oh, he's a great, what, like moral teacher, Right? And uh, the root of that is the same problem that Peter had, which is he didn't realize that Jesus is in a category all to himself. He's putting Jesus on the same playing field of Moses and Elijah, which is granted good company, but it's still not even close to enough for Jesus. And so what does God do about that? He shows up and he clears things up pretty quickly. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. There's no response to what Peter's saying, by the way. You notice Peter says, good thing, hey, let's build some tents. We get the little side note from Mark. He didn't know what he was saying. He was terrified. And then the next thing that happens, the cloud shows up, and a voice comes out of the cloud. He says what? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but what? Jesus only. Well, uh, one thing I sometimes like to do to make parents upset is give uh, tattoo uh, advice. And if you're going to get a tattoo, I'm not a tattoo person, but Jesus only. I mean, come on. What's, what's Jesus only? Moses and Elijah are there, but then they're just gone. And it's Jesus only. And the cloud speaks. And what's that remind you of? Jesus' baptism, right? He says, this is my beloved son. Then he says, listen to him. He doesn't say, this is, this is the next great leader of Israel. 
voice in the cloud doesn't say, this guy has some great advice, so you should hear what he says. No, this is my son. Listen to him. Why should you listen to Jesus? Because he's the son of God. Because, how do we know? Because God's glory is radiating from Jesus. And you think about, again, Moses and Elijah, who both had opportunities on mountains to see the glory of God, right? We talked about Moses last week when God put him in the, in the little cave, and then God said, I'm going to walk past you, and you can see my back. We didn't talk about what happened after that, which is, do you remember? Moses' face was glowing. Why? Because he, the glory of God had been reflected onto him. Now, let's think very carefully about Jesus here. Why is he glowing? Is it because the glory of God has been reflected onto him? No. It's he, the glory of God is radiating out of him. Right? We saw this verse last week. We have seen his glory. We're talking about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is one of a kind. There is no one like him. He is the Son of God. And you need to know that. If you're not following Jesus, or maybe you think you're following Jesus, but you're just kind of following Jesus, but you're not following Jesus, you know what I mean? You need to understand, nowhere in Scripture is the idea that Jesus is just a, a great guy. He's the Son of God. He is one of a kind. There is no one like Him. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And up here on the mountain, Peter and James and John get to see this firsthand. And did they understand it? No, of course not. And you can read about what kind of happens after that. Uh, they didn't get it. Um, and there's so much more that can be said here. But uh, as we wrap things up, there's just there's one more thing I want us to see which is that the transfiguration shows us, yes, Jesus is one of a kind. There is no one like him. You take the greatest men in the history of Israel, stack them up next to Jesus, it's, no, they don't even compare. But the transfiguration isn't only about the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's actually also about us, in a way. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. On Friday, I got the privilege of attending another uh, graduation from the Valley of Grace. Uh, it's a, a Christian uh, rehabilitation clinic in Kokomo, and it's just, a, and that, it's just an amazing place. And uh, Tom Pinkard works there, and, um, and I, I try to go to as many graduations as I can. Like I've told you before, I work with these guys just once a month, go and lead Bible study, and so I'll get to know them a little bit. And uh, the guy, Bryce, was graduating, and... Uh, and afterwards, he came up and said, hey, man, thanks so much for coming. It's like, buddy, you don't understand. I'm doing sermon prep here this morning, <laughs> because uh, this afternoon, because uh, every time I go, I'm just blown away with the testimonies that these guys have to share. And, and so Bryce graduated, and, and he shared, and he talked about his whole life before being a part of the Valley of Grace. He felt like he had all the puzzle pieces, but he was missing one. And maybe some of you can relate to that this morning. And he looked everywhere for that peace, he said, and he turned all sorts of things like drugs and alcohol. And he said, it wasn't, it wasn't even like I was trying to enjoy those things. I was just stuck 
I just knew like something was missing. And then he went to the Valley of Grace, and uh, Jesus met him there, and he, and he found that final, final puzzle piece. He said, on the, wall, uh, on the wall where he was speaking, there was this large wooden cross and just kind of hanging on the wall like our, we have a cross here, and there's a kneeler right underneath it. He said, every single night for the past 90 days, I've been right there, kneeling at the foot of the cross. And, uh, and that's where Jesus gave me what I've been missing all along. The transfiguration is, uh, is not just about uh, Jesus being transformed because in Christ we are all being transformed. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's talking about people like Bryce's testimony before Jesus. I just had a veil there, like something was missing and I couldn't figure it out. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Then verse 18, and when we see that, and when that veil is removed, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed. You know what that Greek word is? Metamorpho or whatever. It's the same word. We are being changed in form. Jesus was changed in form, and when we see the glory of God, we are also in the same way being transformed. There's, man, I, I got to tell you, church, sometimes I get up here and I say things, like, this feels like blasphemy coming out of my mouth, except it's exactly what God's word says. And that's, I think, when we know we're getting close to the goodness of the gospel, when it feels like this can't be true, but it is amen. Amen, it's true. We are being transformed. We are being transfigured. You used to look one way, and now we're being transformed. So how do we get there? Four steps. You see the first one. Behold the glory of Jesus. You've got to see the glory of Jesus for yourself. You've got to turn to the Lord, like it says in the verse that we just read. Think about Isaiah in the throne room of heaven. He sees the glory of God. What's his response? Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a big time sinner. I don't belong here in the presence of the glory of God. That should be your response. Peter and James and John saw the glory of God. Cool, Jesus, you know any more tricks? No, they were terrified. And when you see the glory of God in the face of Christ, it should terrify you in a sense. You should say, like, I don't belong here. How am I still alive? God, why haven't you just killed me? Like, that's like the, our, our base response to seeing the glory of God. Woe is me. You see his glory. And then from that woe is me, you confess that Jesus is the Christ. Like Peter did, Jesus, you are the Christ. Have mercy on me, Jesus. And then when you make that confession, the most incredible, amazing, magnificent thing will happen to you. That burning coal will touch your lips. 
and you'll be healed. And you might not fully understand it at first, okay? I mean, I want you to, understand, I want you to hear this. Again, especially if you're brand new in your faith or not yet following Jesus. Peter said, you are the Christ, and he was right, and he had almost everything else wrong. <laughs> and that's how it is following Jesus a lot of times. And Peter needed to learn, and he did learn, and he, and he grew in knowledge and understanding and wisdom, and that's what following Jesus is all about. But he didn't know all these things before he confessed that Jesus is the Christ. So when turning to Jesus means I see your glory, God, and it brings me to my knees. I say, Jesus, you are the Christ. And then third, you listen to him. That's what God said. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him about what? Well, everything but especially the stuff that he'd just been saying before that the disciples clearly didn't understand. That to follow Jesus is to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. And why does it matter if you gain the whole world if you forfeit your soul? And we listen to him. And then finally, follow him to death. Oh boy, Pastor Mike, you just always know how to end right on a most encouraging thing. Follow him to death. That's number four. This is the crazy part. You'd think if I told you, you get to be part of the family of the king of the universe, you'd probably be like, awesome. I got riches and success and wealth and prosperity and just flood my way, right? No. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus means putting your old self to death. Another thing that Bryce said in his testimony, he said he, he was a former Marine and that he was really working on the idea of gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit. Like that was really hard, kind of hard thing for him to grasp. And, and he said this, and I love it, I'm going to be saying it for the rest of my life. He said, I don't think that gentleness means weakness, but if it does mean weakness, I want to be weak because that is how God is glorified. Oh man. Following Jesus means confessing the weakness of my flesh so much that I want to put it to death. And then we do that right in here. We're going to do that next week. You know, not going to actually be happening. We're symbolizing what's been taking place in your heart. That old, oh, oh man, that old flesh that got me nowhere. I just want it off of me and I want new life. Oh, that's the best thing there is. Oh, man, you think, well, I know Jesus. He's the Christ. Uh, and that's, that's the right thing to think. And then our next step is, what's he calling me to put to death? And the answer is oh, all, everything, <laughs> my whole self, all my old desires, all my old plans, everything that was just in me. And I'm going to put on Christ, and I'm going to see what he does, right? Is that not a better place to be in Christ? In, God, what are you going to do with me? Oh, church, let's not keep spinning our wheels. The old self, the old flesh, thinking that's going to get us where we want to go. Let's behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And let's be transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's so good it sounds like blasphemy, but it's not. It's the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, again, these truths are just, just too, too deep and too precious even for words.
God, none of us in this room has even a, a partial grasp of the, the reality of your holiness. Not to mention the fact that in holiness, the Son of God took on flesh and was born as a baby and lived a life that was just constantly pointing people to the fact that he, he is the Son of God. And then he died, the most unexpected thing, and yet in his death, Death was the greatest power in the history of the universe. And in the same way you are wanting to work your power through our death, our death to our old self, and you're wanting to raise us to new life in Christ, God. If there is anyone in this room who has not yet been raised to new life in Christ, may today be the day of their salvation, God. And they fall on their knees and say, I'm seeing the glory of God and it's terrifying me. And I realize I need a savior. May they know the precious love of Jesus that pours out and overflows and fills their soul and puts that puzzle piece into place so the man or woman that you have created them to be can shine forth. And because of that, now your glory is being reflected in their lives and in their hearts, and then the whole world can see your glory through us, God. Make that more and more true of every single one of us. Start with me. You are so good. We praise you in Jesus' name.